This morning's scripture reading will be from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Hebrews 11, verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity for us all to come together as a family, to encourage one another, to see each other's faces, to embrace each other, to help each other in our struggles and with our, our issues and problems and griefs. And also, Father, to, to, to encourage and, and, to, and to glorify Your great name and great work and great power among us this day. We pray, Father, in all that we do, that we have eyes that see and ears that hear. And especially now as we come to this text and study it, we pray, Father, that You will guide us and that You will give us wisdom and that we will turn to You with ever-loving hearts, Father, ready to embrace You and to be embraced by Your will. Father, grant us this in the name of Jesus. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. There are two great commentators on culture and two great commentators on life. You know their names. One is William Shakespeare. The other is Mel Brooks. <laughs> Shakespeare uh, had this, this, this great line that came out of the mouth of Macduff in the play Macbeth at a time when Macbeth was going around and wiping everybody out. It was a terrible bloody time in the play Macbeth. And Macduff says, Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. Mel Brooks said, not quite so elegantly and not quite so eloquently, he said simply, life stinks. They're both saying the same thing. They're both saying exactly the same thing. The great temptation, I think, is for us today to think that if we had lived in biblical times, our life would be easier, that the life of faith, that the life of, 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 of being faithful to God and being a disciple of Jesus would be easier had we lived in biblical times. And the reason is, is that when you read the pages of the Bible from Genesis to the maps, it seems that God has a knack of showing up with a miracle in the nick of time. But then all of a sudden we begin to pay attention, close attention to what the words of the New Testament, actually the entire Bible say about this. And what we begin to discover is that much of the New Testament was written to address the struggle of living with tough times. 
the struggle of living with uncertain times, to live with grief-filled times, to answer the question, how in the world am I to live as a disciple of Jesus in a time of uncertain future? Well, one thing we can do is we can notice the great contrast in the passage that Stephen read to us just a minute ago. You'll notice in the first couple of verses, verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2, that it's all great stuff. It's the great stuff of the Christian experience. You are a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a chosen people. You belong to God. You're the people of God. There was a time when you didn't receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of the great experience of the Christian life is right there. But then beginning in verse 11, it seems that Peter turns on a dime. And all of a sudden he begins to talk about the fact that there is this this need to abstain from these sinful desires that wage war inside of us, in the inner person. And so there's this battle that is being waged in the inner life, but it doesn't stop there. Because Peter knows what life is really like in, in the real world. And he knows that it's not just an inner struggle to live faithfully, it's also an outer one. And he says, you know what? You need to live your life in such a way that you understand that there will be a point in which you are going to hit a wall. It's going to be accusations. It's going to be things that are maybe unjust. There are things that are not going to make sense. But the pagans will turn against you at one point or another in your life. And you need to be ready for that. Now, how do you live that life? How do you live the life of faith? Well, there's this key phrase in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, it's the phrase aliens and strangers on the earth or aliens and strangers in the world. And that's what brings us once again to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, once again, is this case study of people who did not have designer lives. It's a case study of people that lived life where life was to be lived. That is, out in the world, in relationship with other people, but always in light of God's presence and God's call, and God's hold on their heart. And so it's a case study, not of people that had designer lives, but people who nonetheless lived great lives of faith. They were were described all over Hebrews chapter 11 as aliens and strangers. That phrase, aliens and strangers, or in the the latest version of the the NIV, exiles and, and, and foreigners, describe all of these people in Hebrews 11, but one in particular. His name is Abraham. And we run into Abraham for the very first time in the Old Testament book of Genesis after all of the things that have been written about the creation of the world and the fall of the world and how God is interacting, trying to redeem the world. We come to Genesis 12 and everything changes again. Even the Hebrew of the Bible changes when we get to Abraham's life. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, I want to read this from the King James. The Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. Now, this is is just a break in the action. And especially a break in Abraham's life. Abraham thought that he had a secure life, that he had a home. He had his family around him. He had his extended family. He had his kin. He knew the language. He knew the culture. He knew what his days were being ordered to look like. He had that kind of security. And then all of a sudden, God shows up one day in his life, and God says to Abraham, in that kind of a context, get out. Get out. And Abraham, according to verse 8 of Hebrews 11, 
does not. He goes out, but he does not know where he is going. And he spends his life as an alien, as a stranger in the world. God comes to Abraham one day and says, get out. And Abraham asks, where? And God says, you know what, I'll tell you a little bit later. And then a little bit later in the story, God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham looks at his own life and says, you know, I don't know how this is going to happen. And he looks at his wife and I don't know how it's going to happen with her. How, God? And God says, I'll tell you later. And then a little bit later in life, God says to Abraham, you know that son that I promised you and that son that you now have, the son of of Sarah, your wife, Isaac, the son whom you love? Sacrifice him. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll tell you later. And in all of these things, the Word of God comes to Abraham and Abraham moves and Abraham reacts and Abraham obeys. And it's not that Abraham understands any of this, but in trusting God's Word, the Word that is great enough and strong enough and powerful enough to create the entire universe becomes for Abraham a Word that is powerful enough to be trusted. And because this happened in his life, Abraham becomes the paragon. He becomes the model. He becomes a new paradigm of faith. He becomes the exemplar of faith. And not just for Christianity, the three great religions of the world. Abraham is the model of faith for the Islamic world, for the the Jewish world, and the Christian world. And it's because he, like all of the others in Hebrews chapter 11, they confessed that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. You know what that confession means? You know, you don't confess that 2 plus 2 equals 4. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like in class? You know, what is 2 plus 2? And some kid raises his head. Yes, uh, Bobby, what is the answer? I confess that the answer is 4. Nobody says that because it's a truth and it's a great truth, but it's not a life-changing truth. When something is confessed, somebody's life is about to be changed. That's why you confess that Jesus is Lord, because your life is in the process of being changed. And when Abraham, along with all of these other people in Hebrews 11, confess, admit that they are aliens and strangers, they are admitting to, they are confessing, they are, they are communicating a life-changing truth about their lives and their paradigm for lo- that life and their relationship with God. That they are not connected in the way that most people are. And so how do, you, how do you get there? How do you get there? Well, the structure, there, there are two great points, I think, in this verse we're going to look at. And the structure is, uh, I, I want to use a windshield. Everybody knows what a windshield is. If you drive or have ever been in a car, you know what a windshield is. And here's the thing about windshields. You're driving down the road, and if you're looking at the windshield itself, you notice the crack, the, the chip, there may be dirt, there may be something worse that's on that and you're looking at the windshield. You're looking at the windshield itself. What are you going to do? You're going to crash. You're going to because you're not you're not treating the windshield or you're not responding to the windshield in the right way. The windshield is not to be looked at. The windshield is to be looked through. And that is going to help us to understand these two points. Number one, Abraham chose not to look at his present circumstances. Abraham chose not to look at his present circumstances. Let's go again to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance, 
obeyed and went. Obeyed and went. Circle those words. Obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. Now, we've already seen in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, that when God calls Abraham, he tells Abraham to get out. And Abraham goes out not knowing where he was going. But here's the thing. He didn't need to know. And the reason is, is because Abraham's heart was not set in his circumstances. His core of his being had not settled into his personal context in such a way that it became a security. Now, friends, there are two problems. There are two huge problems that come when you base your life on the circumstances around you. That is, you know, my, my life is going to be good because my circumstances are right. I've got a spouse, or I've got children, or I've got the right kind of job, or I've got the right kind of education. X number of dollars in the bank. I've got all of these things. I've got the dog, I've got the cat, I've got the fish. The difference is that Abraham did not couch any of his life in these kinds of circumstances. Now, here are the two great problems with that. If you do that, the first thing is this. It never works out that way. It never works out to say, my life is now set because I have a spouse. Now let me tell you, being married is one of the most wonderful things in the world. I've been married for 31 years this August. And I can't imagine what my life would be like without my spouse. Uh, children, uh, having money in the bank, all of these things are wonderful things, but if they become the legs on which you stand, if they become the foundation out of which you are able to, to be in this life, what happens when those things are wiped out by death or disease or divorce or by messed up relationships or by a bad economy? If that becomes the legs on which you stand, then all of that is going to be wiped out one day and where are you going to stand at that point? That's why it doesn't work. As great as they are, as beautiful as they are, as much as I would say, yes, they make up a good portion of what is great about life, they're not the foundation. That's why you can't set your heart in your circumstances. And then number two, faith will not work if I say this, unless I know where I'm going, I'm not going to go. Faith does not work if I insist that unless I know where I'm going and what time I'm going to get there and how I'm going to get there, then I'm not going to go. And you know why it doesn't work in the world of faith? It's because at that point, God realizes that you don't trust Him. What you trust instead are the circumstances. You know, when it comes to these kinds of relationships, there is absolutely nothing more hurtful in the world than to look somebody in the eye that you have known for years and years and years and had a tight relationship with, and you say to them, I know you, but I don't trust you. Can you imagine anything more devastating than a spouse saying that to another spouse or a, a, a father or a mother saying that to a child or a child saying that to parents? I know you, and I don't trust you. And quite frankly, that's what happens in the world every day. As people go chasing after what they're going to wear, what they're going to eat, what they're going to, where, where they're going to live, all of these kinds of things. And that's sort of expected because of the lack of a relationship or a knowledge of the true identity of God and the power of God in our lives. But what happens, church, when it's us that says, you know, unless I know where I'm going, I'm not going to go. I'm basing my life on my circumstances. And when we do that, when we, when we do that as believers who understand 
the power of God's promises and His presence and the power of Scripture shaping our mind and our hearts in faithfulness, what we do when we don't trust God is to give Him a vote of no confidence. We blackball God, not only in our own life, but in the lives of all of those that are watching us, knowing, knowing every day that we are praying to Him. The life of faith boils down to the question of trust. That's the point. And that's why Abraham becomes this case study in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. It's because we have to cultivate a heart like Abraham's. God says to Abraham, go to a land I will show you, and he trusts God. And God says to us, I want you to seek first everything in my kingdom. And everything else is going to be given to you as well. Do we really trust that? Number two. Not only did Abraham not choose to look at present circumstances, Abraham chose to look forward. To look through his circumstances. To look through his own personal context to the city of God that was out there before him. In verse 10, he was looking forward. He was looking forward to the city without foundations, whose architect and builder is, say it, church, God. You know, one of the great knocks about Christianity is that it becomes so focused on, on, on the world to come that it doesn't really work in the world that is here right now. I mean, that's why Marx had all of this heartburn about it and said, you know what Christianity is? It's just kind of the opiates of, of, of the people. And other people have, have you know, disclaimed Christianity with, you know, they become so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. But here's the thing. I believe with all of my heart that when you, you, you truly come to understand where this Word is pointing you, and it begins to shape your mind and your understanding of the God who has His hold on your heart, and on your mind, and all of the circumstances of your life, that when you know what will help happen to you ultimately, that is that your citizenship is in heaven, that it really empowers you for life on earth. Think of it this way. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen to you historically when you know what's going to happen to you ultimately. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen to you today and tomorrow and the next day historically if you know what is going to happen to you eternally. Now here's how that works. At some point, you get to the understanding about the life of faith in your life that if I'm going to live faithfully, I'm going to have faithfulness as, as kind of the, 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 the vanguard uh, attribute of my life, then that means I have to be willing to lose some things. I may go through life and not lose anything at all, or it may be that I go through life and I lose a lot. And you can't live faithfully if you're willing to lose certain things. And what gives you the rationale, what gives you the emotional power to bear losses here, right now in this life, in any circumstance, is, is when you understand that in living faithfully, you can see things as they really are. You see them as loose change in your pocket and all of your riches, your gold, your, 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 your money, your stocks and bonds are in a Swiss account. Now, let's drill down a little deeper. I don't, you know, I've got a, I've got a pocket knife in my pocket. It's probably worth 30 bucks or so. Now, if I lose this pocket knife, 
It's 30 bucks. I have $3 trillion in the bank account. I lose this pocket knife, what am I going to do? I'm not going to drop to the floor in the fetal position because I've lost everything. What I'm going to do is I'm going to understand that my riches are elsewhere. My riches that, that make me rich, the, the things that make me wealthy, are not right here in my pocket as loose change. But on the flip side, I mean, I mean, think about it this way. I mean, what if, what if I had $500 in my pocket? To me, that's a lot of money. Is that a, a lot of money to anybody else? I mean, that's a ton of money. I lose a $1,000 bill out of my pocket. But I realize that all of my gold, my $3 trillion in a Swiss account, I don't drop in the fetal position. But on the other hand, if everything I have that I think I have is right here in my pocket, if the last thing I have is a nickel, then I'm devastated to lose that. And there's something about that kind of perspective that Abraham had that makes him the example of what faithfulness is all about. Now those material things are nice, but they're not the whole shooting match, and they certainly aren't home. And when you hold on to those, that loose change in your pocket, as if it's the whole shooting match, then all of those things are ruined because you're trying to make them the whole of your life. And Abraham said that he would not do it. So when God said, get out, Abraham left. And he believed that he would be a father even in his old age because God said it. And somehow in his thinking, he was able to see somehow the resurrection when God said to him, the son that I have promised you, go and sacrifice him. Now I for the life of me, can't imagine Abraham not struggling with a lot of that. And I'm not saying for one instance that when you go through these uncertain times or when times get dark and it seems like it's closing in around you, that it's not a time for tears or a time for grief or a time for suffering. Abraham, I think, struggled, but he went through. He went through it. And not because he was so detached, but because he was able to see all of these events that were happening in his life. He could see all of these things that were taking place in his life, right there, his personal context. He saw them as the front porch and not the living room. You know, front porches are great, but you don't want to live on them. You want to live in the living room. And Abraham was able to look at all of those things that were going on around him, and it was, it was the foyer. It was, it was the front porch and not the place where he was living. And so it says in verse 11 of Hebrews 11, and this is the key, it's because he considered him faithful who made the promise. You know, Abraham grasped that great faithfulness, that, that great faithfulness of God in such a way that it became an anchor of his life. And this Hebrew writer who loves to talk about Abraham goes back to the sixth chapter of this same book of Hebrews. And he says in verse 13, When God made His promise to Abraham, He swore by Himself. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. That's the call right there. 
is Abraham saw something that was so magnificent about God and the power of His Word and the faithfulness of His nature. And he was so overcome by the fact that this God is speaking to me that I trust Him. And that trust, that hope, that all of those promises would be true became an anchor to his soul when his life threatened to be buffeted about because of all of the changes and all of the tragedies and all of the crises and all of the moments of doubt and the darkness and all of that. It was an anchor to him. You know, there's this really interesting thing that happens over in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 12, God has made all of these promises to Abraham. He just shows up one day says, Get out. And go to this land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to make you a great nation. And, 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 but you need to get out. And you need to follow. And you're going to be blessed in, in so many ways. And then you go over three chapters to Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham has this question. He says, how do I know I'm going to get this reward? How do I know I'm going to get it? And Abraham says, or God says to Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get some animals. And I want you to kill those animals. And I want you to chop them in two. And I want you to separate them. Now we look at that with our modern sensitivities and we go, oh my goodness, that is the most horrible thing ever. But Abraham knew what was going on there. Abraham knew that there was a covenant that was about to be made. And this is the way that covenants were made in this ancient world, is that you know when you had a relationship one with another, and there was a covenant and promises that were involved, what you did is you cut those animals, it could be birds, cows, whatever it might be, goats, sheep, and you separate them. And then each party would walk between those cut parts of animals, and basically they were signifying that if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, then may I become like these animals. It was a very graphic and, and, and realistic way of saying, I am going to be true at great cost if I'm not. And here's the thing. Abraham thinks that he's going to have to walk through that. He thinks he's going to have to walk through it. But God comes to him. And God has told him, I'm going to give you these things. And here's, here's just some reaffirmation that's going to come. And God goes through those cut pieces. Those cut pieces meant that if you broke the covenant, if you broke the promise, if you reneged on your word, if you didn't do what you said you were going to do, then you were going to be cut off. You'd be cut off from love. You'd be cut off from life. You'd be cut off from your wealth. You'd be cut off from other people. You'd be cut off from the community. You'd just cut off. Nothing worse in the ancient world than to be cut off. It means that you were isolated. There was the worst thing ever in the mind of an ancient person was to be separated from tribe or village or family or kin. And God goes right through the middle of those pieces and says, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, I will be cut off. Interesting happened centuries later. God in heaven said, is there anyone who will go? And the son, according to the book of Hebrews, said, Here I am, send me. And he went. And he passed through. You know, Isaiah chapter 53, I think it's verse 8, says, And he will be cut off from the land of the living. When Jesus died on the cross, he was cut off. 
He was cut off for you and for me. He, he went through the pieces for us in order for all of the great promises of God to be true in us through Christ. When we think about the greatness of the Word and the greatness of the faithful character of God and all of the words that He has said to us, we have to ask ourselves a question after we get over the fact that these promises are mind-boggling. Do we trust them to be true? Do we trust them to be true? Where I am willing to lose some things because I don't live on the front porch my true home is in heaven. And my true riches are there in Christ. And when God looks upon me and looks upon you, He sees beauty because He sees the faithfulness of His Son that we have been given because of our faith in Him. His righteousness is given to us. And when God looks at us, He sees beauty. And it's a truthfulness in our own hearts to say, that God is awfully fond of us. Awfully fond of us and a friend to us in this life. That's the testimony of Scripture. And that's the example of Abraham. The question is, will you be an alien and stranger now? Or will you be an alien and stranger in the future? The price is this. You know, to be an alien and a stranger now, you may lose some pocket change. You may lose the loose change that's in your pocket. You may, because you know your riches is elsewhere. You're not going to be devastated about it. You're going to have the power. You're going to be empowered and equipped to live this life with poise and with an equilibrium and, and with a strength and with a balance that is mind-boggling. Through the, through, you know, we don't go around the problem. We can go through the problems and out on the other side. And that is the power of God's Word and His Spirit in us and the power of His presence and, and the hope of His promises before us. They are that anchor for us because we have faith in Christ and have accepted through baptism and confession His death, burial, and resurrection, the forgiveness of our sins, our sins being washed away, the Spirit being put on us in such a way that we are shaped every day for this kind of life. Alien stranger today or an alien and a stranger in the future. There is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. There is a day in which Christ will return and look for faith upon the earth. And in that great scene out of Matthew chapter 25 with the goats and the sheep, he tells those that are the goats, those that have not acted faithfully, those that have not been in relationship with Him, the ones that He says, I don't know you. What does He say to the goats, church? He says, go away. Get out. And to the sheep, He says, come. Come. It's our, our custom here that when Ben leads us in a song after our sermon that we haven't a time of invitation. And that's for, for you to respond to the work of God, to the hold that God has in your life, uh, in this moment. It may be that you need the prayers of the congregation to encourage you to be more faithful. It may be that you need this church to minister you in some way to help you get back on the path. Or it may be that you need to express, to confess your faith in Christ 
and your love of God and to repent, that is to change your life and to confess that Jesus really is Lord and to participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by being baptized. And maybe losing some things now in order to gain everything, everything, everything in the future. If that describes you in any way this morning, our shepherds will be down here at the front to greet you and to meet you. Come down and talk to them now as we stand and sing together. There's a fountain free, tis for...